Think about what we just sung. <clears throat> Lose all their guilty stains. And we think about how we've lived this week, let alone all of our life and the guilt we have before a holy God. Friends, you understand God requires perfection. Jesus said, be ye perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus commands to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Friends, haven't you failed in that this week and today and this morning? We all have and we're all guilty before a holy God. The good news of the gospel is through the blood of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for our sins, God will forgive us of all of our guilt. This morning we're in Ephesians chapter 1. You should embrace that good news. You should call on the name of the Lord. You should repent of your sins. Turn to God and Jesus will forgive you and you lose all your guilty stains and are counted holy. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, this chapter breaks into kind of two neat halves. Uh, we've been looking for many weeks in verses 3 to 14. That's uh, the first section of Ephesians 1. It's, it's a praise to God. It's a call for God's people to praise Him and gives us all these amazing spiritual blessings from God as a reason to praise Him. So uh, verses 3 to 14 would be praise to God. And then verses 11 to the end of the chapter are, are a prayer to God. I'm, not, I'm sorry, not 11, verse Verse 15 to the end of the chapter are a prayer to God. So the next couple weeks, Lord willing, we'll be examining this prayer. It's a prayer for the church, and it gives us a good way that we can pray for the church. We need to learn to pray, and I think the best place to learn to pray is by studying prayers in the Bible. And here's one of them. Here's a way you can be praying weekly from the church. Let's see what Paul the Apostle prayed for the church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, the scripture says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Jesus taught us that the way to eternal life is hard. Straight is the way and narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life, and few there be that find it. The way is hard that leads to eternal life life. It is challenging to be a Christian. Following Jesus is not easy. To obey Jesus is a struggle, oftentimes against the world and against our flesh. And it was a struggle in Ephesus to the recipients of this letter. If you went back and read in Acts 19 about what Ephesus was like, it was an incredibly depraved place. It was dominated by the worship of false gods, all kinds of immorality of various sorts. It was hard to be a Christian for the Ephesians. It's hard to be a Christian in our context and in our country. This text is a prayer to help us endure. 
It's a prayer based on what God has given us in our inheritance, and it's a prayer that we would understand what we have. So I think what we have here in this prayer is, is a, 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 a great encouragement for us in how we endure, how we walk the straight and narrow path, which is hard. And look at how it begins in verse 15. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And if you went back and read the history, you'd find the Ephesian church was a church like others that struggled. But notice what Paul focuses on at the beginning of his prayer. He's heard about their faith and about their love toward all the saints. That we, we should value faith and love in the church. This, this helps get our heart primed and our mind primed for prayer. To value what the scripture values. To value what Paul values. Now you think about Paul the apostle. He's an apostle. And he's used by God to, to start many, many churches. And I say that to, to, to show you that if anybody knows about a church, it's the Apostle Paul. And you look at what he values in the church. You look at what he gives thanks for in the church. Look at it there. It's two things. Your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. First of all, there's the, your faith in the Lord Jesus, that you're trusting Jesus. Now, many of the people that Paul's writing to probably heard the gospel from him. And they had believed the gospel. So these are people that were already believers, but they are still living out the faith, which is part of a right understanding of what faith is. It's faith that trusts Jesus, depends on him, and keeps depending on him, and keeps trusting in him. And that's what you find in the Ephesian church, and Paul is thankful for that. These Christians are believing in Jesus. And not only that, he's thankful for, he values their love for all the saints. That God's people should be big-hearted. That we love one another. We love the people in this room. And that we love, look at it, all the saints. That there are other Christians out there besides us and beyond us. And we are to love them as well. Paul commends this in the church. I think it's very instructive for us to, to, to look at these things and think about what does a guy like Paul the Apostle value in a church? What does Paul look at a church and say, that's, commend that's commendable? That's commendatory. He does the same thing in 2 Thessalonians 1. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1.3. That's another church like the Ephesian church at this time that was a very com commendable church. Look at what he says here. 2 Thessalonians 1.3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. It's good to be thinking about what makes a church pleasing to God. What makes for a good church? What are the attributes of it? Well, friends, if faith and love should be at the top of the list, or very near to the top of the list, we need to value faith and love in the church. That's what we should be striving for as a body. Then he moves into his prayer after he talks about their faith and their love, verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So thinking about praying for the church, we should be thankful in prayer. should be thankful in prayer. This has caused Paul the Apostle to notice it, not cease to give thanks for you. This is a lot of thanksgiving for the church. Remembering you in my prayers. That God is not only concerned that we pray, he is concerned how we pray. God is not only concerned what we pray, he is also concerned the way we pray. 
the attitude in prayer, and it's similar with obedience. Does God care if we obey? Absolutely. But God also cares how we obey, how you go about it. Does God care that we pray? Yes, but how do we pray? One of the things the Scripture consistently teaches is to be thankful in prayer. It's what you see here. Paul is thankful for their faith and their love, that they're growing and they're increasing. We should be thankful as we approach God in prayer. Let me just give you a few scriptures to consider about this. It's always good to be reminded of familiar scriptures when we're thinking about prayer. Look at it in Philippians 4.6, a great passage to memorize on prayer. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And that's followed with a promise that the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But you notice their prayer, supplication, that's praying for other people, and thanksgiving. Colossians 4.2, another just a great simple sentence to memorize about prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer, keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. If you read through the Psalms, you're going to find a repeated theme throughout the Psalms is this thanksgiving to God. This is part of the way we approach God in prayer. And the reality is this, this affects our disposition. I mean, you look at the people in the church and you think about the people around you. Are you always thankful for these people? Well, if we would give thanks for them in prayer, it would help us. It affects our disposition toward others. How do you love other people in the church? Well, if you're praying with thanksgiving for them, it will help you. Having this disposition, not only that we are praying for one another, which we should be, but also the manner of our prayer. I mean, you think about me. I mean, there's a thousand things you could think negatively about me. Or about any person, because all of us are sinners. When we pray, we should be thankful. The Ephesian church is far from perfect, but what does Paul say about them? He is thankful for them. He is thankful for their faith and for their love. Look specifically what he prays in verse 17, what he's praying for. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, the revelation, and the knowledge of him. It's a prayer for knowledge. It's a prayer for understanding. But notice before he gets to the prayer, the God of our Father, of our, I'm sorry, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. One of the things you find in prayers oftentimes are these confessions of who God is. It's characteristic. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. This is a regular characteristic in biblical prayer, confessing what God is like, who God is. Making clear that we're praying to the Lord of all. And here's the prayer request. That he may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. This is probably just a reference to asking the spirit to give wisdom to his people. This is one of the works of the spirit that you can read about in 1 Corinthians 2. One of the, way the, one of the ways the spirit operates in our life and in the church is he gives understanding. He gives understanding. The Spirit was given that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The Spirit was given that we might know. This is part of His work. This is what Jesus means when He says that that the Spirit will be your teacher. He will teach you. I think that's probably what Paul's asking here on behalf of the church. So one of the things we see here as Christians is there's a need to be growing in what we know. 
And the means by which, or one of the means by which we grow is through prayer, praying for others. We want to see maturity in the, the body. Uh, we, we see that as an ideal in the Bible. We want to see growing, maturing, edifying Christians in the body. How does that happen? One of the ways that it happens is praying for them. Praying for them. Not complaining about our problems all the time, but praying for other Christians to grow in knowledge. Let's break it down. Look what he says here. Look at these words he uses. It's, it's the Spirit, the Spirit who gives wisdom. It's a spirit of wisdom to live out what the Word of God is. That word revelation, this is an awesome word. This is the word that is the title of the last book of your New Testament. Revelation. It literally means to shine light upon something that was earlier in darkness. That essentially if you've ever been in a room in your house and you have these shades, these blinds over your window, and the blinds are, if they're doing their job, they're blocking out the sun, but then all at once you pull the string and the blind goes up and light comes in and floods the room. I don't know if you've ever been woken up that way. It's quite invigorating. That's, the, that's this word. That's revelation. Light shining in. Making something clear that was earlier in darkness. Obviously, as Christians, we recognize there's much that we don't know and understand. And we pray for that understanding, for that revelation. This is the work of the Spirit making known to us the things freely given us by God. And notice it's the knowledge of Him. It's not some esoteric knowledge. It's not some worldly wisdom. It's knowledge of God. And specifically, we're going to see in this prayer some specific things God has already done that we Christians might know about it. And how do you know it's through prayer. First of all, look at the specifics of what we want to know. The knowledge of him, verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. More this, this need to, for light, that having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that is the shining of light. That your heart might be able to see something that God has done. Keep in mind, this is a prayer for Christians. This isn't, this isn't a prayer for evangelism or salvation. That's appropriate and that has its place, but that's not what we're talking about here. This is a prayer that Christians might know something. The first thing that he prays that we might know is the hope of our calling. Look at it there. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, giving light to your heart, you might know what is the hope to which he has called you. The Bible, the New Testament, usually uses the word hope in a different way than we use it. If I use the word hope, typically I'm, it's some optimism I might have. I hope West Virginia football makes it to a bowl game this year. That's in doubt, that's optimism. I hope to do more artwork this week. Maybe, I don't know. That's not the way the Bible uses the word hope. The word hope in the Bible is certainty in something future. Very different than just some optimism. Hope in the New Testament is hope in something God has already promised. It's almost always connected to the promises of God. God says something, we hope in that. It's kind of like the return of Jesus Christ in one place is called the blessed hope. It's not as if maybe Jesus is going to return or not. No, that is our, it is a hope, it's a certainty, but it's yet future. And that's what we're talking about here. There's something yet future that we need the eyes of our heart enlightened that we might know about. And notice it's the hope of your calling. You understand God has called you. This is an amazing thing. 
You should, you should do this study in your New Testament and study the word calling or the word called. It's the fact that God called you out of darkness into his light. He called you out of the, the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is an amazing thing that God would call you. And he's done that. But do you know how hopeful that is? That we should know the hope of our calling, and that leads into the next thing we should know, the hope of our inheritance, the hope to which he has called you. What is, or what are, I'm sorry, it's plural, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? It's what Paul wants this church to know. It's what he, God wants us to know as believers. We pray for one another that our hearts would be enlightened to know what is the hope of the riches of our glorious inheritance. Now think about that. As a Christian, you have hope in glorious riches. Look at that, look at, look at those words. Riches of his glorious inheritance. Now if you go back up to verse 14, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. This is back up to those spiritual blessings from God given to us. Look at one of them in verse 14. The Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So because of our salvation, we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He's the guarantee of our inheritance. There's an inheritance that God has given to us. We have been sealed with the Spirit. He's the guarantee that inheritance is ours, but we've not taken possession of it yet. It's future, and that's why the word hope here is used. But the prayer is that we Christians might know the riches of it, that that which is future is where the glorious riches are. But our riches are not in this life. That's why our hope is never or should never be tied to or bound up in this life or the things of this world. It's always a temptation. Always distracting, the world is, isn't it? But no, our hope is in a much greater wealth than that. So do you understand as a Christian that you are rich spiritually? You have an inheritance before you that is described as riches of his glorious inheritance? I've used the example before. I want to use it again because it regularly encourages me. That if you could imagine for a moment if you inherited one of those awesome antebellum mansions that are around New Orleans. There are just some amazing estates outside of New Orleans, kind of out in the countryside. If you drive around, you might find, find them every once in a while. They have the huge oak, live oak trees. They have the ponds. Some of them even have a drawing room, which I think would be really cool. I mean, imagine me inviting you over and we're going to go to the drawing room. That would be awesome. Or a conservatory, a music room. There's all these musical instruments, I can't play them, but maybe you can. But to inherit something like that, a $20 million estate, antebellum mansion, that sounds pretty cool to me. And you imagine, what would your attitude be? All you have to do is go to New Orleans, meet with a lawyer, and sign the papers. Some distant relative who you don't even know has left this to you, and it's astounding. For some reason, he chose you, maybe by grace, I don't know that he's left this to you and all you have to do is go sign for it and you're on your way to New Orleans. What is your attitude on your way to receiving that inheritance? Would it be full of complaining? 
Or what if you, what if you met with some unexpected difficulty like a blown out tire? That's a bummer. And then it costs you 120 bucks to get it fixed on your way. But what's 120 bucks to 20 million? What is your attitude like on your way to receive that kind of inheritance? I would be pretty happy about it. I would usually be ticked off by a blown out tire, but if I'm on my way to get 20 million in an inheritance estate and a drawing room, I think I could overlook that unexpected difficulty. Why? Because of the hope of something so much more valuable. That's what God wants us to realize. And we have something far more infinitely valuable than that. And that should affect the way in which we live here and now. And that should affect our demeanor. That should affect our prayer. That's why Paul wants the church to know that because it would have an effect on their life. Now let me make a couple final applications then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. First of all, one of the things you see in this passage, you see the triad of faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. Secondly, what we want to focus on, the importance of intercessory prayer in the church. Philippians 4, 6 calls it supplication. This is, this is something you see throughout Scripture, friends, but is it something we practice on a regular basis? Even, I mean, our, certainly we pray for ourselves and our families, but what about prayer for the church? Prayer for the body of Christ, for the brothers and sisters, the Christians around us. We need to engage in intercessory prayer. That's what Paul's doing here. That's what this passage is. It's an intercessory prayer for the church. And again, you wonder, what can I pray for these people? Here's a good model. And there's many others in the New Testament. There's many other examples. Pray, thanking God for our faith and love. Pray those will be increasing. Pray that we'll know what is the riches of our inheritance. Pray that God will give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Pray that we might know the things freely given us from God. This is one of the means by which we grow in the faith and one of the means by which the church is built up. It's by our prayers. You need to be praying for the people in this room. Please do so. Which for most of us means you need to have a time regularly carved out, sanctioned off, that we devote to prayer. Intercessory prayer, supplication for other people. It's a divine means God uses for the building up of his church. We would confess we want to see the church thrive. We want to see the church built up. We want to see Christ build his church. How does he do it? One of the ways he, Christ builds his church is through your prayers for the church. What we see in this prayer, if you break it down, there's a, there's a lot of common aspects to prayer all through the New Testament and Old Testament. There's again confession of God, there's thanksgiving, there's request. And this prayer, what we're going to look at next week, Lord willing, the last few verses, 21 to 23, is a confession of the truth of the supremacy of Christ. Sentence after sentence, or uh, really it's just one sentence, about the glory of Jesus Christ and how great he is. That's how the prayer concludes. Now friends, prayer in the scripture is powerful. This is why the Son of God himself gives himself to prayer. He prays all night before he chooses the twelve. He pray, he's praying 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness when he's tempted by the devil. He's praying in the garden before his great work of going to the cross commences. The Son of God is a, a man of prayer. 
Friends, how much more do we need to be men and women of prayer? Prayer is powerful. Think about what praying is. It's calling upon God to do something. It's just amazing that we're invited, commanded, encouraged to do that. To call upon God to act. It's part of our Christian life. It's powerful. Think about how divinely powerful that is to call upon God to do something. Usually prayer is also asking God to do something only God can do. I don't typically ask God to open this bottle of Barks root beer for me. I'm going to do that. Prayer is usually bound up in the things, I can't do this, God, I need you to act. You can't make other people grow in the faith, but God can. You can't make other people love God. How does that happen? The Holy Spirit. You can't make other people repent of sins. If we could, we would. We pray. Prayer is powerful. It's also practical. It's a real help. I mean, this week, like I told one of the families here, I was, just pray, I was praying this week for our college students. I mean, they need it, don't they? There's a time of life attended by a lot of different temptations and difficulties. And so we need a regular time of prayer. We want to see, see lives changing in the church, don't we? As believers, we want to see us growing. How is that going to happen? Prayer. We want to see the church change the world around us, don't we? The world be turned upside down by the power of the gospel. Prayer. We must pray. Because we need divine help, we need divine power. Now, two anecdotes at the end. There's a a story commonly told about Charles Spurgeon and his church. I don't know if the story is true, but I'm going to share it with you. Just a disclaimer. Spurgeon had some visitors that came to his church because, essentially, the Metropolitan Tabernacle was one of the first kind of well-known churches throughout the world. Uh, Spurgeon had essentially the biggest church at that time in the world, and a lot of people had heard about it. And and so that garners a lot of interest. Other people want to come and see what's going on here. And there's this account told of a group of people coming to visit the Metropolitan Tabernacle. They've written ahead. They have a meeting with Spurgeon. They meet with him, and essentially for a week, he walks them through kind of what their ministry is all about. And then on Sunday, uh, essentially one of them makes a comment to him about how has this taken place? How did this happen? And, and Spurgeon's answer is to take them to the Sunday morning prayer meeting. Because at that church they had a meeting for prayer that was attended by about 100 to 200 people. And Spurgeon called it the boiler room. He called it that because in that day and time, steam power was what powered things. And the analogy was, here's the power of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Now, see, if you ask me the question, what made the Metropolitan Tabernacle so great, my answer is, well, Charles Spurgeon is one of the greatest preachers that ever lived. That was not his answer. His answer was it was the prayers of God's people for the church. There was also, now this story is true. Allegedly. (laughs) It's at least documented. There was a um, dignitary that wanted to meet Billy Graham. And, uh, you know, all these famous people wanted to meet Billy Graham, and some of them got to. And this person was at one of the Billy Graham crusades, and he was some national who's who, some dignitary. And um, 
one of Billy Graham's other like leaders, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but it was one of his leaders in his ministry, took him to Billy Graham's hotel room and um, opened the door and the dignitary got to see in Billy Graham's hotel room and got to see him on his knees just crying out to God. And then the, the guy, I wish I could remember his name, closed the door quickly and said, well, he's in prayer right now. We'll have to, you'll have to meet with him later. And so it was a few hours later that Billy Graham finally emerged from his hotel room. And the dignitary said of that, now I understand Billy Graham's power. It's because he was so committed to prayer. Let's open to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and let's consider the Lord's Supper before we take it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 gives us the most in-depth treatment in the New Testament about what the Lord's Supper means and how we should take it together. 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to look at verse 23. Obviously, if approaching this with thanksgiving and prayer will be appropriate, and we'll do that. But we want to take a few moments and look at what the Scripture says about what we're about to do. Friends, I do this because I, I had many experiences growing up not knowing what this was. And because the picture this passage paints is about the solemnity and the importance and the gravity of about what we're going to do. This is in the context of the Corinthian church. Like so many other things, they were doing this wrongly. And so we learn from the rebuke. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. So essentially following in the example of Jesus, Jesus took bread. He had a meal with his followers. His followers now are going to continue to have a meal together. Verse 24. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, the emphasis there is on remembrance. That the bread and the cup, in taking them, we are to remember Jesus. But notice carefully, he says, The bread and the cup are given for you. And Jesus, like he often does, uses analogies. You see in the Gospel of John, I am the vine, I am the good shepherd, I'm the bread of life. He uses all of these analogies. Here's another. The bread calls to mind his body. What do we remember? We remember his body when we think of the bread. The cup, it's the new covenant in his blood, what God is going to do to save, to give his spirit to us, that we might walk in his ways, that we would be the people of God. And that's for everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. So we do it in remembrance of him. Verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this is a proclamation that Jesus has died. He's given his body and his blood for you. Now the warning and the gravity comes in. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of concerning of, of will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. One of the things if you read the previous verses, the Corinthians were doing is they were treating this like another meal. They were treating it like it was just bread and wine in their case. And friends, it's not just another meal because of what it calls to mind. It's not just a cup and a piece of bread. It calls to mind 
the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It calls us to remember that. The corrective in verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we, we do self-examination. Am I discerning this rightly? Am I recognizing this as a remembrance of Jesus Christ? Am I not just treating it like another meal? Anyone who drinks and eats without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself, which is what we want to avoid. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So this is a time for self-judgment, to judge ourselves rightly. For the first judgment we need to make of ourselves is, am I trusting Jesus Christ? Am I in the faith? Consider your, be diligent to make your calling and election sure. Are, do you know that God has called you? Have you, have you called on the name of the Lord? Are you trusting in Jesus as your Savior to forgive you of your sins? Or are you trusting in something you've done or you're doing? Trust in Him. And if you're, if you're not a Christian today, you should take Christ today. You should call on Him. All guilty stains forgiven. Our sins and our iniquities He remembers no more. That's part of the new covenant. And God is merciful and He'll forgive you. 